Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with John Lamb, the CMO of a company named Elo. John, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us about, uh, tell us about your background. So my background is I've been in marketing for well, too many decades to actually want to admit, to be honest. <laughs> and <laughs> there's the gray hairs are dyed dark for a reason. Um, but yeah, I've been I've been doing marketing for quite a while, mostly hardware companies. Uh, so basically, stuff in and I've been in both business to business as well as business to consumer, and worked for companies like Canon, Epson, into companies that dealt with business to business and business to government like GTAC selling rugged computers. And then now uh, for the last six and a half years, I've been here heading the marketing at Elo. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, that's that's quite a long time. Um, how did you start at Elo? You know, I got recruited and it just, it sounded really interesting. You know, the fact that who knew where we, what, what it would look like today, six and a half years ago when I started. But uh, I got recruited out into Elo by basically a headhunter, and they called me up, and Elo just sounded fascinating. You know, it was a brand, as with most business-to-business brands, they're not readily right off the top of the tip of your tongue. But um, as you start, as I started to look, and as they talked about it a little bit and where they played, which was basically, you know, it was interactive. It was touchscreens, and they had a tremendous market share. They had a tremendous you know, already, you know, positive image of their company uh, within their customers and the segments that they played in. And it was just a matter of really trying to take the helm of that and just expand it. So on that note, what value does your company provide to businesses? Well, we make things possible within, because of the fact that when you think about an interactive screen, you're limited really only by your imagination on what you want to put on that screen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to give you an example, there was a company that had a price checker, this little small little box, and it gave, it, it basically labeled out, you know, whatever it was that was scanned, the, you know, say toilet paper, and how much that cost. And the difference being when you actually really, when you nowadays, that same thing is actually done on a 15-inch ELO instead of the little two, you know, two band little mm-hmm. text blocks. It's now done on an entire 1920 by 1080 screen, and you can actually put, you can put advertisements up there. You could put like or similar products. You could put other products, products that are you know you can cross merchandise. And the fact that you can actually dive deeper now, you can do, uh, you can actually sell it to sell marketing space on there with an entire video at the top, mm. and it gives you that ability to just expand what is possible. Uh, in you know, when you think about, if you look into the fast food world, you know, the quick serve restaurants, when all of a sudden somebody walks in and we've got one of our customers and I'm not going to name names because a lot of our customers are shy, but they are the biggest in the industry. And we have one of them that literally can, there's a switch right on there, a little button that you press and it'll give you the, only the vegan options. And now everything that's presented to that customer is something that customer can accept. Wow. Yeah, an interactive menu. Yeah, that's. I think that's really changing the restaurant industry. Yeah, I think a lot of things are changing. You know, just in 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 that ability to deliver. I know you like to talk about analytics, but imagine the analytics that you can get off of these devices when you can actually know, you know, when you place something on a screen, how somebody, you know, 
that position, which is really the one that people look, you know, gravitate towards. And they add that based on, you know, 90% of the people will add this one thing if you put it right here. That's really interesting. And um, definitely in the same family as web page analytics, where you can look at heat maps and kind of how the customer interacts with uh, the page. Exactly. It's very much a combination between web page and, you know, the apps that we all have on our phone and just understanding proper, you know, user interface and what people, where people navigate and gravitate towards and how you keep them engaged and how you actually get them engaged so that they actually stay on there for, in this case, usually a very finite intended purpose. That leads me to my next question. What value does ELO provide to the general public? Like, like us, you know, if we're at the train station or whatever, we're trying to grab a bite to eat. How does how does Elo make our experience easier? I think part of it is in certainly the quality of the product and the fact that it works. I mean, obviously, you know, we measure in things that people will have no concept of, and that is how fast, you know, down to nanoseconds, really, on how the product actually responds to touch. And so to make sure that at least from a physical standpoint, the product is going to respond as the customer expects. And I think that everyone, you know, th this is just taken for granted at this point uh, because there's so many of them that are deployed out there. And then the software obviously has to be designed for a touch interface. So when, you, when I say that, you're talking about the fact of if you think back to a 1990s website where you had a mouse click and a drop down menu, that doesn't exist here. We're talking about large buttons designed for a finger to touch, interface. We provide a lot of tools to the business customer so that they can then deliver those to the end customer. So what, as you're running your business, what kind of analytics do you look at to determine the health of a marketing organization? Well, the number one we look at is how many units are we selling? And obviously we want to sell more. We want to find unique uses. Uh, and then if you take a look a little bit downstream from there, we do look at where people, you know, who's actually on our website and where they're spending time on our website. Because a lot of times we are looking at things that really aren't deployed yet. And so sometimes we actually have, we have a lot of pages that are on our website that are actually hidden and they're designed for specific purpose, specific usage. They're still experimental in that sense. And we work with a lot of partners in creating those. Um, they aren't the general stuff that's up there. You know, we are a mix in our website of both being a product company, but also being in being a solution company. And so there's some things that you navigate to quickly. There's other things that are a little bit more downstream. And as we're talking to a very specific customer, we may send them that very specific you know, downstream kind of almost, you know, not a, not a direct navigatable page. Uh, we'll send them the direct link to that so that they can get there. They can learn about something that is somewhat more conceptual. And there is a lot of conceptual stuff that goes down to retail that goes down to, you know, uh, some of the new point of sale ish type stuff, the new, the stuff you're doing in what people are trying to put into restaurants, hospitality, retail, it must be a lot of numbers to look at. Would you say that um, the background of CMOs in the next few decades will almost certainly have like a strong analytics side um, just just by virtue of how technical and marketing and analytics is getting? I think every CMO has to have a very 
in-depth ability to crunch numbers. Uh, but at the same point, you also have to be able to look at your gut hunch. You have to be able to look at, you still have to be creative. You have to make sure you have the right message. You know, I, when I remember back when I interviewed here, I always said it was marketing is as simple as what are you going to say and who are you going to say it to? And that still holds true. So when you figure out what it is you're going to say, the who it, who it is you're going to say it to, there are vehicles to get there. And you need to figure out from a mathematical, analytical standpoint of which vehicles are helping you the most. Uh, but at the same point, don't get lost in the numbers because some people look only at numbers and, and can't step away from them. You can make numbers work for you any which way you want. And it's important to look at those numbers with a very you know objective viewpoint and make sure that they are actually completing the you know really looking at them and letting them guide you to where they go rather than trying to justify something based in and pull the numbers to make that justified yeah do you have any examples of when maybe what you believe or what your gut says is right maybe at odds with what the data may be saying and how you kind of resolve that yeah, yeah, actually, that's an interesting question. So I have a funny one where uh, we were at the very beginning of COVID. COVID threw numbers off, right? And we had a product that was marketing basically in towards uh, meeting room, interactive meeting rooms. And all of a sudden, our advertising campaigns were exploding on that, right? So there were the, the amount, the number of people clicking on stuff was just going through the roof at the very beginning of COVID. And I remember somebody coming to me and saying, should we increase our spend there? Because we're hitting our cap every day uh, for a couple, you know, two, three, four days straight. And the initial, you know, from a, from a, if you're only looking at the metrics, you're going to stop and you're going to say, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge volume there. The problem was these were probably a lot of people looking for how to do, you know, the remote meetings rather than how to do interactive meetings in a, in a small conference room or huddle room, which is where we were trying to sell. So we actually had to shut down our marketing in those segments at the beginning of COVID and then apply our marketing the same dollars towards something that would probably be more productive. And that turned out to be the best actual, that was using numbers and really stepping back from them and looking at them from a qualitative standpoint instead of only quantitative. Wow, that is a great story. In the past, I was looking at paid search responses, and the part of the job is to look at where there may be a mismatch between the intention of the keyword and what people are searching. And sometimes you can bid on something and think that you're getting the the activity that you want, but actually it's you're capturing a query that somebody's using to actually do something else. Like in in many ways paid search is uh, all about capturing that demand. And sometimes you can misread or misunderstand that demand. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at that and you're trying to actually get out there and market towards somebody, you have to, as a business to business, especially when you're business to consumer, you can look at carts, right? You can look at, did I actually get somebody to a cart? Did I help sell at that exact moment? Because hopefully you're doing some selling online. When you're business to business, you have to look a lot deeper and you have to look at things like, you know, time on a page. How many pages deep did they go? If you you can get as many people to your website as you want, but if they're only there for five seconds, they're completely useless. Yeah, the, I think I think bounce rates are really interesting to think about 
just because of the sheer number of people who are on the internet apparently just like going back and forth on various websites which I I think I have that pattern too I guess Um, but it's an interesting behavioral pattern for how common it is to like land on a page and then immediately backtrack yeah you know if it, it does come down to if the search result the second you land there there's an emotional response that you have on whether or not it just innately met your needs of what you were intending to search for or it didn't so the back button can come very quickly and it's important to make sure that whatever page they land on is relevant to whatever it was you were paying to advertise for can you give us some examples of how how to solve that to make sure that your landing page does match the intention of the customer yeah a lot of times you actually have to do very customized landing pages and when i talked about a lot of hidden pages that's why we don't it's things that we don't necessarily at, you know, list in our, our normal site structure. So when you go into our solutions, you'll see, and I don't know what the number is, I think we have like 8 to 10, 12 up there maybe. Um, but when you actually, in our site, we probably have about 25 different solutions that we are using from an advertising standpoint. So when you click, you get to a page that is relevant to the search term. To expand on that a little bit, it's like you take a look at self-service is a very, gen- that's one of the ones in our top-down solution, right? So it's maybe depth level three in our website, but self-service is a very broad category. So then we have certain things that are down there. It could be a self-service as it relates to the aviation industry. It could be a self-service as it relates specifically to self-order versus self-checkout. And it's those sort of things. It's like, yeah, we have several depths to us and things that are just things you, you wouldn't normally figure out how to navigate to, but we'll put up there that will be the landing page for a search uh, criteria that we put out there. Yeah, so this is really looking at that mid to lower funnel activity when a customer already knows about you and they're considering purchasing, they're in that maybe trial phase um, and they're moving towards a purchase. So this is where analytics, you know, currently we have a good amount of analytics. What I wanna ask you about is upper funnel analytics because this, you know, things like spending money on branding um, this is a little bit more uh, difficult to measure. So I want to ask about how you, you know, how how you think a good way to measure upper funnel marketing spend effectiveness is. Hmm. So we do that a lot with things, uh, a lot of times like LinkedIn advertising, where we are trying to get into somebody's inbox and you're trying to do that that 60 mile per hour billboard. So you're literally just trying to get your name out there in front of somebody on a very regular, very consistent basis. You're not looking for the clicks throughs, you know, the click through as much. Um, It's still helpful when you get it and you look for those. Um, But at the same point, so the messaging becomes lighter. The call to action isn't quite as in your face. It's the fact that in somebody's feed, you're going to put your brand in front of them every, you know, every day, every week, every month you know, whatever it is based on that. And how do you look at how much to spend on that? You know, it, there's a percentage of your budget, you know, is too much and you know, it's too little. And so you just sort of, you, that's, you start playing with those numbers a little bit and you try and look at it um, because you see the spend every month, you see the spend every week. So I think you sort of figure that one out. It, it, it varies. There's no formula that would work uniformly across any company you have to do what makes sense for the exact company that you're talking about at that time. That's really good insight. 
So this definitely seems like one of those more strategic or like art side of the business where you're like, we need to get our name out there, but it's really, it's, it's really hard to un really tie that to a purchase. So we have to kind of use our business sense and a common sense probably a lot um, to, to figure out what that number should be. Exactly. Now, having said that, even when you're doing that, what you still have to have that landing page. So if somebody does click, you didn't just waste that one opportunity that you have to, you know, capture that person. Yeah. So would you say that it's more important to make sure you're capitalizing on like the mid and lower funnel demand before um, sort of letting loose on the upper funnel spend? No, I think I think both are equal. Um, I, I think absolutely both are equal, especially when you start talking about the ability to go after very specific segments and when you're a business to business and you think about a, a specific industry, whether that's automotive, aviation, retail, restaurant, whatever, you kind of know the players that you're in a way maybe, to, you know, thinking could benefit from your service, from your product. And so you build something that is very specific towards them, you know, some sort of plan to say, I want to get this message in front of them. And in doing so, it is as important to think that there's that person that is the low funnel versus just, you know, the high, it's the 60 mile an hour billboard and I need to let them know that I exist. As a CMO, do you have any advice on what's, what skills somebody can build to become a great CMO? I think the number one thing is learn to build a team because too many CMOs that I see are trying to be, you know, the so-called John Wayne, right? Trying to be that lone ranger and it never works. You have to have a team. The only way, once you get something and it, something works, you have to be able to scale it. And the only way you can do that is with manpower. So I think that that is one of the biggest things. You also, no one person, you know, I'm a unique balance of both a creative and an analytical, but you need both sides. You need people more analytical than me. You need people more creative than me. So by that's where you have to figure out really what your organization, your marketing organization is going to look like. And it is getting those uber creative people. It is getting those uber analytical people. And then you being as a CMO, knowing that your job is to actually run that organization, not try to be the person that does everything. Because that's where I see the biggest you know, failures among chief marketing officers. How do you determine if somebody is good for a team? You know, I have, I just, it's one of my unique talents, honestly, that I, I can't say how to tell somebody how to do it. I look at resumes when I'm trying to hire somebody, I will look through a thousand resumes, a thousand LinkedIn profiles, trying to find that one diamond in the rough. And because it's so personal to me, I don't rely on anybody else to do my recruiting. I look at it. And then by doing that, the number one thing, again, I'm going to try and write that job wreck specific for the position that I'm trying to get to. And by even writing the job rec, I've gone out and I've looked at open positions from companies that I admire, from companies that are, you know, maybe you might say more synonymous with what our business model is or what it is I'm trying to, what my objective will be. And because it's so personal to me, this is a person I'm going to bring in, not just to the ELO family, but into my marketing team. That's why it's personal to me. And by doing, by taking such a role in that, it, you know, I just, it, it works out and it has worked out. Interesting. So how do you then determine the amount of roles that you should have? 
based on gaps, a lot of times we use a lot of outsourcing. And so when the outsourcing becomes too great, then we think, hmm, maybe we ought to bring this thing inside. And, you know, that really is. We're not just, we don't create a position based on just a, a sheer whim. We create a position based on the fact that we already have that function and it's getting too overworked or we're utilizing outsourcing and we're utilizing it now to a level where we should probably bring something in. So that's, you know, that's kind of how our mindset goes. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I was recently talking about the idea of bringing work in, you know, into the team uh, that that's currently outsourced. And I, I learned that sometimes it doesn't work out so well. And sometimes there is actually an advantage to having a third party do some of the work. Can you talk to what that advantage might be? Yeah, I actually agree with that. Because one, when you look at something that's an outsourced, right? Sometimes, so we have, we, we still maintain a lot of outsourcing, a lot of in, insourcing, right? A lot of internal teams. But when you look at some of the outsourcing, some of your advantages will be the ability to scale, go up, go down. And again, if you can hit 100% of that internally, that's great. Well, another advantage sometimes is that you keep that individualized function within a greater team that also still does that individualized function. Because once you bring that singular function internally, they become an island. They're the only one that knows that function. And rather than whether external, they might be one of, you know, eight, 10 people. Think about something like search engine optimization. And if I bring that, that, that's a function we still have outside. Someday we could bring it in, maybe not, who knows? We have certain talents inside just because we've all been doing it so much, but our experts are external and they are one expert. If they have a question, they can turn to one of their colleagues, but if they're internal, and they're supposed to be the smarter of all of us. They don't they can't turn to anybody. That's a great way to put it. It it is nuanced. Yeah, we've we've struggled. Another one we struggled with is honestly writing. So we do a lot of stuff that's we use external writers for stuff. And when you actually look, and in my Oregon Talent review and stuff, for a couple of the years, I actually had a slide in there which was they listed about I think it was twenty different versions of what a writer could be from a title standpoint. Because when you think about a writer, what do you think of? You know, is it is it the creative writer? Is it the SEO writer? Is it the ad writer? Is it the copywriter? Is it the, you know, technical writer? These are all different personas. So what writer are you trying for? Or do you go to an agency that just does writing? Well, that brings up the question of ROI. So how do you look at, you know, ROI for something like writing? How many did we do? How much did we spend? If we bring it in house, you know, there, there is a mathematical and we have a position like this and I won't say which one it is, but we do have a position like this where we're looking at how much we spent. We're like, okay, now we know that we've kind of hit that, that really optimum point where we should bring the person inside because we can pay, still pay them more, but probably also get more. We're not using them full time today. So in order to pay them more, we also need to get more out of it, right? And that's the same thing with writing um, or any function in that regard. If they're external right now, if you're only spending 20% of what a full-time headcount would cost, then you wouldn't bring them in. When you start getting into that 70 to 85% range, now you need to look at it because you're going to bring them in. Obviously, you're gonna, you know, not just pay, but pay benefits and all that stuff. And can they, once they're internally, do something that provides you that 
that increase in output. Do you think the relationship between agencies and companies will always exist? Yeah. Now the question is, if you want to go further on that one, then you would say, is does the relationship between full-time agencies and marketing organizations continue? Or do more people try and find those focus area agencies? Because that's how I am. I actually go more towards, I'll take an agency specific to this function, and then I'll take a different one for another function. Oh, interesting. So you're saying like rolling it up under one partner versus separate partners. And I'm the, I'm the sort of person I will actually go more for the separate partners rather than the singular. Basically, they are the marketing, you know, the outside marketing organization for us. I'll instead, we'll go with individual ones, maybe an agency that's specific to writing or an agency that's specific to, you know, back end web development or search engine optimization or, you know, creative or whatever. That's interesting. And do you think that we're going in that direction as an industry? You know, I think that there's so much of this became, it, it's not, and I wasn't a Madman, you know, fan. I didn't watch the show, although I get the premise. And, but back then when it was just, basically you went to one thing, it was just advertising and it was, you know, billboard print, maybe newspaper, magazine, TV, right? It was the simple stuff, the original five, if you will, for advertising. Uh, it is different nowadays. And so when you think about it in those terms, it's, it is that A-B nuance of when you're going to do an ad campaign over you know, Google or over Bing or over LinkedIn, it is looking at those individual words and the visual and how everything ties together and the ability to switch it so fast. And that might be one agency versus something else you do for when you're trying to do videos. Um, to me, bringing everybody just having one group do all of ours, uh, to me, just doesn't work as well. So I've always liked going with people that are specialized and that that is their expertise in that in that very individualized function. Would you say for startups versus for large companies, which to which size benefits more from marketing analytics? I think they both do. I just think they, I think many times they might go at it they both might go out of it correctly. And so from a large one, they're happy in a way they see what they, what looks like status quo and simplicity. And they're a large company that just, you know, think about the Titanic turning in the bathtub. They don't want to, right? Um, and so when, they, when they're trying to, you know, they don't want to rock that boat. So they look at it as, they look towards the stable. Um, but at the same point, so they should be looking at those numbers, trying to figure out how do I take a 3% growth and make it a 7% growth. And then for the smaller person, it is so critical to also look at those numbers because you can waste a lot of money in marketing. And it's that's one of those things that, again, if you're not looking at the numbers properly, then you're doing a disservice to ultimately to you know the financial side of your business. I agree. I like organic marketing out of any channel the most. I think it's it's just, um, well, first of all, it's free, and it also is the most authentic, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Everything, that's the thing. I think a lot of people look for the silver bullet, right? The one thing that solves it, and there is no one thing. There is no home run. Don't try for home runs. Try for singles, right? Get three. Get three singles. Now the next one creates a run. And when you think about it in those terms, you're always looking to 
accomplish something. And so you, then you take your social, your organic, you augment that maybe with even social paid, then with pay-per-click paid, and then with, you know, something in the terms of, I don't know, even a billboard or a radio or TV, whatever makes sense for your business and all of it collectively. And then there's certainly still word of mouth even, right? Uh, each of your employees should be your, should be part of your advocacy group, right? They are close to the, uh, to the business and they need to be individual advocates for the business. So when you take all of this collectively together, you build up a home run plan. Um, but when you're only thinking about, well, how do I hit this one thing out of the park? I guarantee you'll probably fail 90%, 99% of the time. My uh, old marketing mentor um, used to say traffic is like water through your website. So you want to make sure that, you know, the it flows at the greatest rate and that it's efficient and, and not like subdivided into many tributaries and kind of dies off, but rather that there's like a strong flow from um, landing to your page to actually completing whatever task you want to do, whether it's doing a trial or purchasing a product. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the person that I actually kind of grew up following and, and learning from always said that you, you your brand imputes its values in every single thing that it does. And, you know, to that same point that you just made, it's, you know, and it's everything. It's it's that giveaway that you have, right? When you, or, or the quality of the shirt that you actually put on your employees, whether or not they wear it, what they do. Um, but it is that sort of thing that even the smallest things impute the value of the company and say something about it. So I think that every single thing, you know, as it goes through that stream matters. That's actually a really good point. So you must be a fan of swag. I, yes, but I, I look at swag as two different things. And for the most part, I don't like the give away, the go aways. I like the giveaways. And somebody taught me that a long time ago. There's two types of, of swag. There's the go aways and the giveaways. The go aways are here's a crappy pen, walk away, right? Take it and leave. Um, I'm more a fan of the giveaways where it is something that if you don't want it in your house, why would you possibly think that you should give it to somebody else? And so with that... Pretty much everything I make, I kind of want in my own house. That makes perfect sense. And it's better for the for the earth. It is, yeah. That's another thing I do think about is if you literally just give something away and it makes it home, or actually half the time it won't even make, if it's at, a, say, a trade show, then when somebody's packing up, guess what they're going to leave behind? That bulky thing that weighs a lot or doesn't weigh a lot, whatever. They're just like, eh, don't have room. Do you ever think about the environmental impact of marketing when you're deciding kind of like where to spend money or is it really a business decision and that shouldn't really have any weight? I think it should have weight because I'm very much an environmentalist. But I will also say that, you know, I think that the environmental impact is from marketing nowadays is far less. Um, you know, we were very early on you know, when I started here there was a lot of print that was going on and I actually cut that down pretty quickly. Again, back to that thing. You're at a trade show and you put these, when you print stuff and you actually put out brochures, you're literally putting out a tree. And when it comes down to it and somebody, you know, they'll take it away from your stand, but when they get back to their hotel and they have to pack up, guess what actually is heavy, those brochures. And so a lot of times they just get left in the room. And to me, you just wasted it twice. So if you're going to put something together, if you're going to use postage, if you're going to use something that has to be shipped, you have to think about those environmental impacts 
um, both from a cost standpoint to the company as well as was it worth it? Would you say that the length of time that a person interacts or reads an ad has gone down over time? Absolutely, yeah. Because you look at things like, um, again, more applicable to the consumer world, but Snapchat, it's 10 seconds. When you look at LinkedIn videos, it's you've got less than 10 seconds to uh, before they before that swipe continues. Yeah, so that's probably changed the way creative works to always create a hook, like right at that point. I've noticed in YouTube ads, like it seems like that's how they're doing it, where you, you really want to like watch it for a couple more seconds, but like probably once they get you to that point where you don't press skip, you're probably much more likely to watch the whole thing. So it probably pays off to do like a hook right there. True. And I, ne I never actually thought about this, but if I were designing an ad, I'd probably put the logo right next to right above where it says skip. Just so at least, because that's where I, like when I'm actually on YouTube, I'm always waiting for those seconds to go down so I can hit skip. And that's probably where there should be some visual that tells me something to give me some call to action other than skipping. Let me ask you about the marketing job market, uh, marketing analyst job market and how that has changed over the years. Well, in the last couple of years, everything has changed. I think one of the things, so one of the benefits that I have is that I'm able to actually, I run a not a hundred percent, but a near hundred percent here in the U.S. remote workforce, and I always have since I've been here now six and a half years, and so because of that, it really does give me that luxury of being able to find a talent anywhere across the country. So if I am trying to hire for something like that, I can hire somebody, you know, possibly in an area that maybe makes more sense. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Otherwise, I'm just trying to find that really intelligent person that's doing the job for some companies somewhere across the US. But I will tell you that more and more, you know, people are tr people are going towards um, the digital side. And because of that, you get that analytical side that has to go with that. If we were to tell somebody right now that's interested in marketing analytics to learn the set of skills for it versus perhaps to learn um, a different set of skills for like a future, like where, where the skill sets are going, what would you say like somebody should be building now to anticipate what will be valuable in a couple of years? I think they still always had to focus on what's valuable now because the same principles apply. When you think about if you're always measuring everything towards a return on investment or a it, you know, and by ROI, I'm also talking about when you even think back to a website and you think of time on site, right? There's that is a return on investment, right? You built this thing and you figure out how long somebody stays on it. Um, where, however you got them there, you know, determines, determines what you spent or invested into trying to get them there. So I think that no matter what, the same principles always still apply and always will apply. The difference will be that I can't, you know, I can't right now picture exactly what it's going to look like. Our industry is going to look like it in five, 10 years, except to say that, if you have to always be able to have your head on a swivel and you always have to be able to be, be adaptable towards those futures. Um, you know, obviously we've seen, we still haven't even seen a saturation necessarily in mobile or in AI or in, um, you know, smart devices and how those will play in into how people are marketed to or how people purchase. You're bringing up a great point. And I think that's, you need a really good problem solving mindset for marketing analytics because the variables are always changing. The channels are changing. 
you don't you need to change the channels based on the audiences and how their preferences are changing so you have to be able to problem solve and answer those tough questions for where do we reach our audience when do we reach them what's the best way what's the best message um you know to drive that that behavior that we're looking for um so so yeah problem solving is probably at the core and then you want to have those analytical and business skills to answer the questions and then those would change with time yeah and then balance that with a great creative team and you've got a winning marketing organization awesome well this has been a great conversation i want to thank you john for coming on no problem thank you it's been awesome awesome and thanks everyone for listening we'll talk to you soon